Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Athrobeth, a podcast exploring the ruminant enthusiasts of Rohan from Tolkien's Legendarium. <laughs> I love Which is it. more and more true over the last few months. <laughs> really is less and less about anything else and more and more about horse boys. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I like to stay on brand, Jude. I, I don't want to go <laughs> too far out of my wheelhouse, if you will. Your horse house? <laughs> Your 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 stable, as it I were. Want, I, w- I was just going to try and do a pun about being keeping everything stable, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> beat you to it. Yeah, um, far be it for me to give anybody else shit about staying uh, up on their soapbox, given that our episodes prior to this were about free will and determinism and Nienna. Uh, that would be, <laughs> you know, how many episodes have we done about souls? Like. It's a soapbox kind of year. I like it. <laughs> it's a soapbox kind of podcast. Yeah, it is. Woo! I believe you have one correction, one blanket correction. I mean, look, <laughs> everyone knows I can't pronounce shit anyway. So I will say just I just a blanket sorry for all the terrible pronunciations in the last episode, especially bad where I feel like my gothic names that I tried to do. After that, I, I started playing Valheim and I named my character... Vidumawi. Oh my god, I just fucked it up again! No! Widumawi, which is like V-I-D. It's the daughter of the guy, right, who is the mother of the blah blah blah. It doesn't matter. Listen to the last episode. But I, I pronounced one V as a W and then the second V as a V. So, you know, fuck it. Just whatever you want. I can't yeah. pronounce shit and I'm not well, sorry. In fairness, <laughs> we are English speakers, which means that rules basically apply as often as they do to the American government. And (laughs) you can kind of do whatever you want. And there's no expectation of consistency. We are not German speakers uh, or any other language that has even a modicum of consistency with its rule application. So uh, you can blame it on our crappy native language. Perfect. Okay, thank you. That makes me feel better. There you Uh, go. Yep. So and if I messed anything else up, sorry, I'm doing my best. Uh, Yeah. Which is... Honestly, I was just going to say, which is honestly more than you can expect um, this year. (laughs) Uh, Asking people for their best in 2020, 2021 is kind of a dick move. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm okay. I'm excited to be a sickly lump on the couch next week. Uh, I'm getting my second Moderna shot and I'm very excited to be able to be outside without the all-encompassing fear of some neckbeard that doesn't believe in science and diseases uh, breathing on me one too many times and uh, <laughs> making my lungs turn inside out. Uh, so I'm super psyched about that. Yeah, that's very exciting. I'm less excited by the fact that my overdramatic garbage can uh, immune system is going to just absolutely choke uh, on this second shot. Um, <laughs> Maybe. I mean, mean, most likely, but maybe not. All history would indicate that this is going to be a fun couple of days. Uh, So (laughs) I'm real excited about it. Okay. Um, That's going to be great. Good luck. I know you're you're in the pipeline for getting to that point as well. Oh, yeah. I've had both. I'm all done. I've done my two weeks. I'm like vaccinated. Yeah. Nice. All right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, It's exciting to be able to look down the future and say, you know, we can actually see people. My son has 
a little friend up the block that he met during quarantine. Like we we became friends with that family during quarantine and we've never in- engaged with them with masks off or like anywhere except like at the playground at a distance. So it would be really nice to be able to hang out even slightly more relaxed. Yeah. It would be nice to see our friends and just be cool. Yeah. Um, and it would be nice to uh, take coronavirus off this fucking outline. I would like that to not be relevant to our lives anymore. I yeah. think we're a ways out from that, certainly. But uh, getting to a point where it is even marginally less impactful on our lives would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I hope this so. This is going to be a real relevant conversation in like five years when somebody comes back and listens to this episode and they're like, <laughs> this is boring. Fast forward. Fast forward. You guys could totally fast forward through it. It is like I so hope. all-encompassing right now, though. So. Yeah, prayers to the... They don't like prayers. Fine. Uh, whatever. Invocations to the Valar that we are not... That coronavirus is not like relevant conversation topic in five years. Yeah, I hope Jeez. so. Anyway, <laughs> not to nag... But we've got many pony paths to tread, so let's trot onto the main event. (laughs) Amazing! (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so we're doing horses, right? We're doing, yeah, we're going to do the second part of the horsetry of Rohan. Horsetry of Rohan. So not so much the horses as the people on the horses. Yeah, exactly. The riders of Rohan, if you will. If you will. Oh. Yeah. So last time, if you haven't listened to part one, you should do that because the ancient history is very rich and quite interesting. And we left off with Aorl, the first king of Rohan being made king by Kirion, the steward of Gondor. I almost said Dondor. Whoa. (laughs) No, come on. So just a quick recap. Okay. Aorl is born 2485. His dad is Leod. Leod dies trying to ride a horse. And this makes Aorl the lord of the Aethiod at age 16. Nine years later, he's 25. He and his men come to the rescue of Kirion, the steward of Gondor, and the army of Gondor, uh, and they were fi- as who were fighting and losing to a group of Easterlings under the sway of Dol Guldur, right? Called the Balchoth, or Koth, Balcloth, whatever. I don't know, something. Doesn't matter. In appreciation for his aid... Kirion gives Aorl the land called uh, Kalinarden between Anduin and Aizen and names him king. Aorl swears an oath of friendship and mutual aid to Gondor, and the Northmen make their new land. They call it the Mark of the Riders, and they call themselves Aerlingus. And the word Rohan is actually a term coined in Gondor, and the people, of course, the Rohirrim, that is meaning horse lords. So yeah. So what happened to Aorl? Well, I, I have a small beef with your summary, your recap, in that oh, it yeah. leaves out the most important part. What's that? Of his history, which is that after his father dies, he chases down the horse that threw him and yells at the horse until it becomes <laughs> his servant for all of its life and the lifetime of all of its all of its progeny. Yep. <laughs> He, like, scolds this horse into a lifetime of slavery. And this is, like, some... uh, It's not even a dumb horse that would agree to this dumb deal. It's, like, 
an unusually smart horse. Yeah. And this is why he's able to like demand a blood oath out of this horse for yep. the death of his father. It is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. <laughs> and I really love it that he's just like, fuck you, horse. And the horse is like, yeah, I guess, fuck me. And all of a sudden, the, the line, you know, the line of uh, kings and Rohan have these fantastic horses because this guy chased this horse hither and yonder and, and swore at it enough that the horse felt bad. Like, what the fuck is this history that they're... I hope it's true. Like, there's some stuff in Middle Earth that it's like, this is an oral record. And like, eh, maybe yeah. not. And then some of it's like, I don't care how stupid this is. This is the word of God. This is what happened. Like, yep. as far as anything written in Middle Earth can tell, this is what happened. And oh my God. I hope that this is one of those things. I hope that Errol, like, chased down a horse and scolded it until it agreed to be his, his, his you know, horse slave for all time. His, I his really horse hope companion. I mean, he doesn't treat. Uh, eventually, they be, I guess a friendship, they become friends. But like, yeah, he 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 demands a a life debt. It's like he, yeah. I mean, he he basically demands a a, a Wookiee situation there, and <laughs> I'm the whole thing is fucking weird. Anyway, that's it is. I no, I, I, I wanted to, to to bring that up because it's my favorite dumb part of that guy's life story. It's so good. It's so good. Well, okay. In addition to making horses pay wear guilds for something that they really didn't do, um, Aerol chose the site of his new home on a green hill at the feet of the White Mountains on the south wall of his land. In the Unfinished Tales, we learned that the name of this settlement is uh, Altberg in the Fold. After Aerol's son, Brago, moves the capital to Edoras, Altberg goes to Eofer, the third son of Brago. And it's just, kind of, I, I mentioned this just, you don't need to remember that. I just thought that was interesting because eventually Eomond, father of our boy Eomer, hey, claimed to be a descendant of Eofer. So it's pretty cool. Oh, all right. Aldberg was the most convenient base for the muster of the Eastmark. And eventually this is why we have Eomer stationed there by Theoden, which works really well. So well, we'll come back to that. We don't want to switch. We don't want to just miss out all these great kings of old. We can't skip all the way to Eomer. Jays. No. Come on. All right. So two years after becoming king of the Mark, Aorl has a son named Brago. Isn't that also the name of Aragorn's horse? Yes, they borrow the name uh, in Pete Jackson's movies. It's it's a, not the name of Aragorn's horse in the books, but it is in the movies. Mm. Okay. And they say, I think uh, Viggo Mortensen has a line like, your name is Kingly. And it's like, uh, for those in the know, uh, we Got think. It. Yeah. So now you guys are in the know. I wonder you if tell. that's offensive. If you were of Rohan descent and you found out somebody had named their horse after one of your most ancient and noble kings, would you be offended to know that? I don't think so. I, mean, I guess because... not. Nobody, no, no Italian is offended that there's a, a dressing called Caesar dressing. Oh my so, God. <laughs> Jesus, oh boy. Well, like, yeah, no, the horses were, you know, beloved, and they were sort of like the ships, right, for these prairie mm -hmm. Vikings. So, actually, I'm sure it would be kind of an honor, right, to name, well, your... especially Aragorn too. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, Ayo... I'm, I'm on board. All right. He's 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 mounting up. He's on board. When you're on board a horse, you... Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Cool. I love explaining jokes. I'm not trying to stir up trouble here. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> 
I just leaned back and almost garroted myself with my headphones. <laughs> I'm okay, I'm okay. Okay, <clears throat> so Aeorl was known as Aeorl the Young because he, well, because he became lord of his people at age 16, and also because he never lost his beautiful blonde hair and his ruddy, which means like red, like apple-cheeked face. Maybe he was born with it. Maybe it's Nabeline. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I stole that from the internet, so I can't take credit for that, but it is good. Yeah. All right, so he had been king for 35 years when he unfortunately dies in battle. He died in a battle against the Easterlings in the Wold. The Wold, you will know pretty well, it's the northernmost and least populated area of Rohan. It's a grassy area between Fangorn Forest and the Anduin. It's bordered on the north by the Limlight. This is where our heroes are in the breaking of the Fellowship. So I looked for more information on this battle because I was like, there must be something. And I don't know. I didn't find nothing. What the fuck? He just buys it and gets chumped in some like nameless, pointless battle. I guess I just felt made me feel profoundly sad that this like hugely important figure doesn't have any more information about his death. And then I remembered I was reading Tolkien and this is just <laughs> part <Yeah>. of it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I don't know. Maybe please let me know if I missed, you know, to the listeners, if I missed where this fucking battle is. I, I don't know. I couldn't find it. So I'm over it. But I did feel kind of sad. Aeorl was buried in the first mound, the first royal mound at Edoras. And also that horse that Jude mentioned a bunch of times, Felleroth. He also fell in battle and they're buried together in that mound, which is very nice. So even in death, he couldn't escape Aeorl. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> I know, I saw your smile and was like, ooh. So just a really fu- a really quick fun fact. In the holiday episode of 2020, we talked about some cool objects from Middle-earth. And one thing that I mentioned was called the Horn of Aeorl. It's that dwarven-made silver horn that was decorated with horsemen and runes. Mm-hmm. It's the one that Eowyn gives to Mary in The Lord of the Rings to thank him for his service to Rohan. And she gives us a little bit of his history. She said that it was found in the Horde of the Dragon Scatha, and Aeorl the Young brought it from the north, right? And she explains that it's like a very special heirloom of her house. And if you blow it it will set fear into the heart of your enemies and joy into the hearts of your friends so sounds like a great horn jude what do you think that horn sounds like give me your your best give me your best horn of the oral noise (laughs) that was amazing that was amazing okay i think it goes bylamos let the rhythm take over bylamos right that was not what i was expecting okay I don't know. That's Maybe, what did you what did you think I was gonna do? Uh Again, not what I was expecting. <laughs> um I don't know. Um I don't know how to do a trumpet noise, so I just made a really weak one. Um You can do any anything you want. It could sound like anything. Yeah, I guess if it's supposed to terrify your enemies, what terrifies your enemies and raises up your allies? I mean, does it sound like a really, really good fart? <laughs> I guess it could. Because, I mean, nothing terrifies your foes more than like a really, a really rough rip. And your friends <laughs> always think that's funny. It's true. It's true. Every time I fart on this show, I never hear the fucking end of it. So there we go. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so you think it sounds like a really good just. Yeah. And I mean, that's not out of the. It's not out of the question that a, a horn could sound like that either. Yeah. It's all about, it's, it's all about you know, lip control. So 
It's your embouchure, right? I, uh, you're, that's what she said. I don't know. I don't know anything about trumpets, ha- despite having played one in grade school. I don't know. I guess not Not well. I don't know. Uh, uh, certainly so, <laughs> not well, no. <laughs> so, th- so you're telling me that when Mary used this horn to do the horn call of Buckland to rouse the Shire people against the ruffians, he was just going... <laughs> Are you telling me that if an enormous fart ripped over the Shire, every hobbit would not wake up and wake up laughing? Tell me that the tell me that the hobbits don't love a good fart joke. I'm crying. <laughs> Do you hear that? What could that be? <laughs> <laughs> My God. Two arms! Two arms! Two arms, hobbits! We can do it! <laughs> <laughs> and every day, every day, it's blown yearly in, in commemoration at sundown on November 2nd. So they're like, and this is the day that we remember that we that we vanquished the ruffians. And now a moment of silence as we sound <laughs> the horn of Aeoral. Oh, it's so beautiful. I love to hear it every year on November the 2nd. Oh, Christ. Cool. Well, that was not the point I was trying to make about it, but I'm glad we went there. Listeners, if you want to let us know what you think the horn of Aora sounds like, you should add us on Twitter and hashtag it. The horn of Aora sounds like, and then let us know what you think right yeah okay i mean i think we're i think we're right but you're welcome to uh you know give it a shot yeah let us know so okay a wonderful amazing author named tom shippy who i know you really really love i do wrote a book called J.R.R. tolkien author of the century and okay in in this book he has a really excellent little um i just wanted to bring it out because i thought it was lovely he says that in that within the world of the Lord of the Rings, like in the world, the Horn of Rohan stands for a rejection of the despair, which is Sauron's chief weapon. And I think that's lovely. Um, yeah, I'd say that's accurate, too. Yeah. And then he takes a step back and he says, outside of the Lord of the Rings, maybe that horn stands for the Lord of the Rings itself. And he says, quote, if Tolkien were to choose a symbol for his story and its message... It would be, I think, the Horn of Aeoril. He would have liked to blow it in his own country and disperse the cloud of post-war and post-faith disillusionment, depression, acquiescence, which was so strangely and twice in his lifetime followed on victory. And perhaps it did, which I think was really lovely. So I I definitely wanted to call that out. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, thanks, Tom. So, Aeoril, he, he took an oath. We know that his oath is going to be answered at least twice. Yep. Uh, and we'll talk about that as we go. So, this, he is the start of the first of three lines of kings of Rohan, right? So, all right. Number one, Aeoril the Young. Yeah! Number two is his son, Brago. Not a horse, a man. <laughs> <laughs> Might have wanted to be a horse, but was a man. <laughs> You never know. He was, in fact, a man. He had two sons, Baldor and Aldor. Uh, in 2569, Brago completed the Golden Hall of Metaseld. And in, in, in like to celebrate that, they had this great big feast. At the feast, his eldest son, Baldor, got kind of wasted and vowed to go into the paths of the dead. Because Why? he just wanted to do that. 
And guess what? He died. He never returned. Mm. <laughs> uh, which is a bummer. So listen, I bring it up. I mean, it's not that important, but I bring it up because we actually encounter Baldor two times in The Lord of the Rings, the main text. The first time in Return of the King, Book 5, Chapter 2, The Passing of the Grey Company. Aragorn and his bros are going into Paths of the Dead, right? And yeah. he finds, quote unquote, the bones of a mighty man. Um, he was They were heavily armored with gold and gardens. The corpse was lying face down on the floor with its fingers were still scratching at a closed door. A broken sword lay next to it as if he had hewn at the rock in his last despair. So it seemed that whoever this was had perished trying to open the door. And Aragorn questions like where that door leads and why would this guy give his life to try and pass it. And he says, we really will never know. Um, at the time, we don't know who this is. Later, we find we find out who it is. Although from his helm and his kind of fancy stuff, we could tell he's a fancy lord. Mm-hmm. So our second intra- instance of, of Baldor comes right after that in chapter three of book five, the muster of Rohan. Theoden's talking to Mary and Eomer about the paths of the dead. And Theoden says that there's an ancient story that had been passed down from father to son in the house of Aeoril. And he says that door was called the door under the Dwimmerberg. And uh, Theoden says, but none have ever ventured in to search its secrets since Baldor, son of Brago, passed the door and was never seen among men again. A rash vow he spoke as he drained the horn at the feast which Brago made to hallow new-built Meadowseld, and he came never to the high seat of which he was the heir. So there you go. Huh. Yeah, and so that was Brago. Kind of interesting. So, yeah. oh no, sorry. That was, uh, what's his name? The other Baldor. guy. Baldor. Thank you. Brago, the father, died from grief of losing his favorite son, and the younger son, Aldor, becomes king. Aldor reigns for 75 years. He is the longest-serving king of Rohan, yeah! During his reign, Rohan did well. It became more populated, it was more settled, it was a safer place. This is when the town of Harrowdale, as well as other mountain valleys, were settled. He had three daughters and one son. It was during this time that he drove out the Dunlendish people that lived east of the River Isen. And I think, I mean, you let me know what you think, Jude, but the Dunlendish people and the people of Rohan, their history is so intermingled, especially during this first line, right? It's all about, we're driving them out of here. Now we're driving them out of here. Now we're driving them out of here. Rohan was kind of a dick to them, right? Yeah, I get the feeling like that was an expansion period and the the Dunlendings kind of got the the short end of that, that stick. Yeah. I come, they come back again and again. You'll see as we go through. All right. So Aldor, ha- as I said, 75 years, longest serving dude. He had a son named Freya, who was the fourth king of Rohan. Not a ton to say about Freya. He was already 75 when he became king. He only reigned for 14 years and everything was fine. There's like the sort of, there's like the, no news is good news crew. So then the next one was a guy named Freya Wine. Nothing to note. He was also old when he became king. Freya Wine will come up later when we talk about a real douchebag named Lord Freca. So yeah, okay. just keep him in mind. Noted. Another guy named Goldwine was next. No news. Ruled for 19 years. Again, was old when he became king. This is like the old crew. The seventh ruler was a guy named Deor. He was 55 when he became king. This is when the Dunlendish raids became more frequent. And in 2710... The Dunlendings occupied the Ring of Isengard and could not be dislodged. We get a little bit of information about this from the Unfinished Tales. And basically, 
we learn that Isengard and the Tower of Orthanc kind of got overlooked. So there were Gondorian chiefs that had been set up there to kind of like keep watch over this. But this was kind of out there for Gondor, right? It's pretty far. Yeah. And over the years, news from Minas Tirith came less and less, right? To eventually it just kind of stopped. Now, Orthanc was locked up uh, and the keys for it were in Minas Tirith. So no one was getting in there, but there was that whole ring that people were living in. During this time, this is when the line of the Gondorian chieftains failed and the fortress sort of passed to a family of the people. And this was kind of, they don't know it yet, but it was kind of an issue for Rohan because these folks were closer to the Dunlendings to, than to the quote-unquote wild Northmen who had usurped the land. So you could see that there's already some, like, not great feelings brewing in yeah. Isengard. So during this time, the Dunlendings start coming back into the Westfold and settling in like the mount in like the glens of the mountains and stuff. They start raiding, they're stealing horses from the herds and Rohan. Then we have a king named Graham. No news about Graham. But I know you're going to like the next king. This is the ninth king. And of course, everybody's favorite, Helm Hammerhead. No, None of the other kings have a sweet nickname like Hammerhand. That's so cool. It's so good, right? And I'm assuming we... that this is not because he had a very, very heavy prosthetic. I'm assuming this was because <laughs> he was incredibly brutal or something and his... His wrath came down like a hammer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He is described as a grim man of great strength. Basically, I don't know if you remember, but I talked about a real douchebag named Freka. He was Lord Freka. He was a vassal. Uh, he was a dude who lived. He had like a little stronghold, and basically he claimed to be a descendant of King Freyawine. Um, although it was kind of thought that he was more closely akin to the Dunlendings and he, because he had dark hair, blah, blah, whatever. All right. Blah, blah, blah. Freka did not have a lot of respect for King Helm Hammerhand and he kind of turned up to council meetings when he felt like it. So Helm in, in turn did not trust this guy, but he still invited him to councils because he had to. So one time Freka rode to a council meeting and he asks for Helm's daughter's hand in marriage for his son a guy named wolf and helm was like oh, fuck no we're not doing that and then he goes on to make fun of freka's weight which is not the best we don't fat shame here on the podcast that's not cool uh, but anyway this pissed off freka and freka comes back and says hey maybe old kings who are offered friendships should not be such dicks about it and helm is like all right bro we're gonna talk after this council's done shut up until then so after the council is finished, Helm insists that Freka goes for a walk by themselves around the fields of Edoras. He makes all his guards stay, and he basically starts by calling him Dunlending, which is kind of a an insult, although, come on, that's not cool. Yeah. Basically, he said that he would never accept an offer like that from an untrustworthy asshole. And then Helm punches Freka so hard that he falls down on the ground. And guess what? He dies a short time after that. So he punched a man to death. That's valid. That's a good way to get Hammerhand as an appellation. Yeah, there you go. After he punched him to death, Helm then proclaimed that Freka's son, Wolf, and all of their kin were enemies of the king. So Wolf and his men were like, fine, fuck you, and they rode away. And four years pass, and everything seems okay, but things are not great. Rohan finds itself in a bit of a pickle. They've got three fleets of Corsairs attacking on all their different coasts. 
Rohan was being invaded all over the place, and the Dunlendings are getting kind of uppity. They try to send help to Gondor, but Gondor like can't get to them. So the Dunlendings, they see an opportunity. They come from Isengard over the River Isen, and guess who their leader was? It was Wolf, that son of the late Freka. Helm and his fighters uh, are fighting the Dunlendings at Isen, but they were overrun, and he takes refuge in the Hornburg, right, which we know later is called Helm's Deep. And he and his men are besieged, and basically the, the Rohirrim are overrun. Wolf goes to Edoras and names himself king. Helm's son, Heleth, who is there defending the doors of Metaseld, unfortunately dies. So his older, so he had two sons, Heleth um, and Hama, and Heleth dies. And Hama is stuck with... Uh, with Helm Hammerhand at the Hornburg. So then, unfortunately, things go from bad to worse when this long winter began and Rohan was snowed in for about five months from November of 2758 to March of 2759. They're at Helm's Deep and they start to starve, basically. Against his father's wishes, Hama, the younger son, gets a group of dudes together to go out and forage for food and unfortunately they never come back. And this... Now Helm is getting upset. He's getting more fierce. He's getting gaunt. He's starving. Everybody's starving and dying. He starts, I think he goes a little bit mad. He starts dressing all in white and stalking around the enemy camps at night. And he kills men with his bare hands. And there's this rumor that starts going around the Dunlending camps that if Helm can't find food, he will eat men. He's like a cannibal. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah, he had this horn that he would blow before he went out on these fun nighttime murder trips, and that would cast fear into the hearts of his enemies, causing them to run away. What do you think that horse sounded like? Uh, probably more intimidating than a fart. So one night, the men heard the horn blowing, but Helm unfortunately did not return. In the morning, it was the first sunny day in a long time, a little sun glint pierced down and on standing on the dike was the frozen helm still standing, frozen in place, uh, which was quite creepy. And it is said that the horn of helm can still be heard at times in the deep, and that the wraith, like the ghost of Helm Hammerhand, walks around uh, the enemies of Rohan and kills them with fear. That's pretty metal. That is super metal. Yes, absolutely. So the winter finally ends. Yay! Helm's nephew. So Helm had a sister named Hild. This guy is named Fairloff. He comes down from Dunhera with a small group of men, and they took Wolf by surprise in Metaselt and killed his ass, and they retook Edoras. There were, unfortunately, as all the snow melted, there were these like really gnarly floods, and the land became really marshy and spongy and gross. And But that actually helped because it moved the invaders out. They died or they were sort of driven out by how terrible these floods were. And finally, a little bit of aid comes from Gondor. So we're around 2759. The Dunlings are driven out from Isengard. Helm's body was buried in the ninth mound. And it is said that so much of that white flower, the Simbelmuna, so much grew on that mound that it looked like it was snowy. And Fairluff, the king's nephew, becomes king. And this starts the second line of the kings of the mark. Woohoo! Uh, so-called because it's no longer direct descent from direct masculine descent from uh, Errol. Exactly. Exactly. It's a cousin line now. It's a cousin line now. Although I would imagine that given that it's a noble house, that Freyloff probably can can trace direct descent back to Errol, just not down the same line that exactly. uh, Helm could. Exactly, yeah. It's important to remember that during this time, 
Rohan was very reduced, right? They had lost a ton of people from war. They had lost a bunch of cattle and horses during that great winter. It takes a few generations of kings before Rohan is kind of back to its former strength. So in, the, so in these next few kings, you know, everything's sort of against them at this point. Yeah. So Freyloff becomes king. This is when, so when Freyloff is is crowned, this is when Saruman shows up. Saruman must have sniffed out that Rohan, like it just dawned on me that like, oh, Rohan's in a weakened state. Ah, I'm going to, He's. this is when he embeds himself, right? Yeah. He brought Fairlaf all these really nice gifts and he spoke praise about the bravery of the Rohirrim and everyone really liked him. And it was at this time that Saruman took up residence in Isengard. The, as I said, the Dunlendings had been driven out. Um, and as we know, Gondor either didn't have the power or the interest in, in keeping it manned. So for, you know, they still had the keys to Orthanc, um, but they, they felt like they needed a friendly person there. Right. So Baron, the steward of Gondor was like, oh, sweet. Saruman's going to go. Great. That sounds good. They gave Saruman the keys to Orthanc and gave him permission to live there. And Saruman is referred to as the Lieutenant of the Steward and the Warden of the Tower and everything's great. Because they're psyched. Well, and I'm sure Rohan was pleased as punch to have a wizard living there because there's no way the Dunlendings are going to fuck with a wizard. Exactly. And he's a good guy. Why would, you know, why, why would that ever go wrong? Yeah. Why, whoa, everything's going to be great, right, guys? Exactly. So it seemed like the best scenario for everyone. Later, though, it does, it, it, it sort of in hindsight, that old, like, Simpsons joke of hindsight man, right? Uh, yeah. It seemed clear, <clears throat> or maybe, is that Simpsons or Family Guy? Crap, I don't know. Doesn't matter. So, yeah. Maybe it's Family Guy. Yeah, so Saruman obviously had gone there in hopes of finding uh, the Palantir, right? The Seeing Stone that we talked about in the holiday episode. Remember, there was one in Orthanc. And Orthanc, even though there had been kind of unfriendly people in Isengard, they had not gone in the tower. So he went in there to try and find uh, the Palantir. He did find it, as we know. After the last White Council in 2953... It seemed very clear to people that Saruman's designs for Rohan might not be so great. He was started to gather people who hated Gondor and Rohan, whether men or other creatures more evil is the is the quote, oh. which I really like. The next king is a guy named Britta. He became king in 2798. He, uh, he was actually called Leofa uh, by his people because he was greatly loved and he was generous and he was helpful and he helped the needy. Weirdly, there's Would no foot... Would you say foot- that uh, he had a cult following? Oh! <laughs> Boy, these horse puns are just amazing. Amazing? You already had that one. That's a good one, though. Uh, let's see. Yes. So there's no footnote for the meaning of that name, but Tolkien Gateway states that Leofa means beloved. I searched, I didn't want to do my due diligence on it too. So I found this really cool website. It's an Anglo-Saxon dictionary called the Bosworth Toller's Anglo-Saxon Dictionary. And I can, uh, we can put a link to it in the show notes. And the term Leofa is a suffix. It doesn't have much about it on its own, but I found a term called on Leofa, which is a noun and it can mean both gift and also like nourishment or food. There's another term by Leofa, which means like provision or or sustenance, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So during this time of of Britta slash Leofa, there was a war with the orcs and they were driven from the north into the White Mountains. I just wanted to take a second to 
put that into context because, you know, in this chapter of the Unfinished Tales about Rohan, they don't really go into this, but this is actually a much bigger deal than it lets on. And it's because it's not really about Rohan, but of course the aftermath of it does affect Rohan. So this is the War of the Dwarves and the Orcs. And the Cliff Notes version is there was a dwarf named Thror who used to be the king under the mountain, right? At at Erebor until Smaug threw them out. Right. Yep. So he and his friend go to Khazad-dûm because they want to find their ancestral home. And unfortunately, Thror is killed by a big, gross orc named Azog. And remember, his head gets cut off and branded and it's like really gross. So Thror's son, Thrain, this is Thorin Oakenshield's dad, heard about this, that his father had been killed and he was pissed. So he rallies all the dwarves to fight and they start this war in 2793. This is a few years before Britta became king of Rohan. And this war lasted six years. At the start of it, there was lots of fighting underground, but the final battle was in 2799. And it was this big battle called the Battle of Azanul Bazar. Battle of Azanul Bazar. And this is at the Dimerald Dale at the East Gate of Moria. This battle is super bloody. This is where a lot of like our hero dwarves get killed. Um, this is where Thorin's shield broke and he was forced to use an oak branch as a shield. And that's gave him that name Oaken Shield, which is pretty cool. After this battle, so, so the dwarves won this battle and the orcs were basically driven out of the Misty Mountains. They fled down to the White Mountains. This is when Britta's becoming king. And he's like, oh, no, there's a bunch of orcs in our mountains now. Crap. Well, well, let's go take care of them. Britta starts this whole campaign to kill all the orcs. And he's like, I think I got them all. Yay. Well, he did not get them all. His son was a guy named Walda. He was a king for only nine years because, unfortunately, he and his men were killed by a bunch of orcs in the mountains because his father had not killed them all. Whoops. (laughs) So there you go. Uh, The next king was a guy named Folka. He was a fantastic hunter, I guess, but he said he would hunt no animal while there was an orc left in Rohan. So he discovered and cleared out this big orc hold in Rohan. He rid the land of the orcs. He's like, get out of here, you guys. And to celebrate his doing a good job, he went to the Furion Woods. Uh, this is the woods around that Halfurion mountain where Oyoral made his oath. Um, And he goes looking for this big boar called the Boar of Everholt. And he kills it, but unfortunately, it got him. It pierced him with its tusks, and he died too. So I guess he's not such a great hunter after all. Well, you don't hunt boar alone. Like, there's a reason why the whole court in medieval, in like medieval and like times when boar hunting was a thing, you would take like all your bros to go hunt a boar. A boar is basically a VW bug. With giant man-killing tusks on the end that hates you. Like, there's a reason why, like, boars account for more deaths of nobles than everything short of, like, warfare and disease. Yeah. Like, they, they were fucking, they're the, they're the goddamn hippos of medieval Europe. Yes. Like, they're gnarly. You don't take a boar on one-on-one. I would face a, I would face ten orcs before I would face a boar. Hands down, no, no question. <laughs> if Sauron had really wanted to fuck up Middle Earth, he would have made boar people, not orc, not orcs. <laughs> it would be like a Minecraft piggy guy. I think they have boar yeah. people in Minecraft. Um, I was playing that Valheim game for the first like two seconds of the game. I was like, oh my god, look at the beauty of the world, and I was immediately killed by a boar. So I feel <laughs> you. <laughs> like the first thirty seconds of the game, it was nice. great. Well, that's that's accurate then. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate the, veris, the verisimilitude there. 
Yeah. So his son was a guy named Folkwine. So Folkwine was the king. It was under his kingship that Rohan finally recovered its former strength after that long ass winter. Uh, so you can see how much time has passed, right? It's been a, a lot of um, yeah. fathers and sons have come. So he conquered the West March area. Uh, Mark, sorry. And uh, let's see. Yeah, again, he was all about finding the Dunlendings again. So he was in between the Adorn River Jeez and the Eisen River. Yeah, I know. They're all over it. As soon as they get done, like, as soon as they get, like, an ounce of stability, they're like, yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah. Everything's fine. Fuck them. <laughs> it was during this time Gondor was having some troubles and called for aid. And this was a great example of Aorl's oath coming back into play again. So Folkwine heard that the Haradrim had been attacking Gondor um, and he sent his men to help the steward. He really wanted to go himself, but um, they were like, no, no, you can't go. You're the king. You have to send your sons instead. So he has these two sons, Folkred and Fastred. They were both 27, obviously, because they were twins. They go for him. This was, this was the Battle of Turin the Second. okay? So he won this victory against the Haradrim at this river called Poros in Athelion. But unfortunately, the two sons died and they were buried together side by side. From Appendix A uh, of The Lord of the Rings, there's a section called The Stewards where we're talking about Turin. And we learned that the two brothers were buried in the fashion of their people in a mount next to the river Poros. And the mount is called Haduch in Guanur, which apparently is Sindarin for mound of the brothers and it was set high on the shores of the river and apparently enemies of gondor feared to pass it to me i'd be like i'm not walking all the way up that hill Mm -mm." (laughs) so that's why i would fear it but okay so turin sends folkwine a rich wear guild of gold for his sons the next king is folkwine's fourth child and third son right because the two the two died yep so Folkwine becomes king in 2903. He was old. He had this older sister with no name or information, and, but obviously she, you know, was not going to inherit. So here's the thing. Fengal was not a great guy. Okay. He was not well liked. And I'm going to editorialize here. He had these two twin brothers, Folkred and Fastred, who died 20 years before he was even born. So I would imagine, and like they died very historically in a battle of service to Gondor while upholding the oath of Aeoril, right? So I would assume that Fengal grew up with a mix of like hearing a lot of stories about his magical older brothers that he never met and also being the baby of the family and also being like the one to restore the family line. So he was a spoiled brat. Yeah, I imagine he had a combination of like could never possibly live up to his siblings and I imagine his father also resented him a little bit for not being his siblings but also was like you're the continuation of my line and nothing can ever nothing bad can ever happen to you because i've already lost two sons so you have to be like pampered and protected yeah i think you're absolutely right he was basically very unlikable it's it says specifically that he was not remembered with praise he was very greedy for food and gold he argued with his own kids as well as his marshals and everyone kind of hated him he had his third child was his only son a guy named thangle thangle peaced out of rohan as soon as he could and he went to live in gondor because he just couldn't be around his dad wow yeah so the 16th king of course is thangle who is very important to us because now we're getting very close to our favorite boys. Anyway, Thangle married late, but he did end up getting married to a beautiful woman named Morwen of Lassenach in Gondor. She was 17 years younger than him, which is kind of icky, but 
whatever. She was uh, a very fair lady of Gondor. She was akin to Prince Imrahil. She was very tall. And when she came to live in Gondor, they called her Steel Sheen, which I thought was kind of cool. Thingol won great renown in the service of Turgon. Uh, This is Denethor's grandfather, right? So Turgon, steward of Gondor. They had three kids, of which our good pal Theoden is the middle child and the only son. So when the unliked grandfather, Thangol, died, the Rohirrim called Thangol back. And he, he went, but he was kind of unwilling to go. But he did. And he was a good and wise king. But he spoke the language of Gondor. And this, like, instead of Rohirric, and this made people not super happy. I wanted to ask you, so this is Sindarin, but also Westeron. Can you talk to me about Westeron a little bit and what that is? Westeron is a Manish language that is... Sort of the the lingua franca of of Middle Earth at that time, like a common speech. Yeah, everything spoken in Lord of the Rings is supposedly Western, and everything it's Sindarin and Rohiric and all those other things are then rendered into are 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 in their language, but Western has been rendered into English. Okay. Oh. So for example, uh like when you go and look in the in the appendices, you'll you find that like the hobbits names are all are all translated from their original names in western into anglicized versions of their names. For example, Baggins is the anglicized version of the western form of the name, which is Labingi. Oh. Oh, is this Ericorno? Yes. Okay, tell remind everybody because that's from like episode two of Athrobat. That is a deep cut. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, I believe it, that it's Western. That is in Western Aragorn is Aracorno, which is <laughs> not good. Um, <laughs> some other ones. Um, Rivendell is in uh, Western is Karingul. Oh, so Western as a so anyway. That's all of the all of the like Englishy air quotes, names <laughs> that you hear in, in the Lord of the Rings are, in fact, in Western and then have been, like, translated into English. That's awesome. That's just, like, another layer of nerdness. Yeah. I love it. Um, Tolkien. And then everything else, all the other languages are in their act- are in Sindarin or whatever, whatever, whatever. So as a language, Western is a Manish language, which is to say that it is descended from a Duneac. The language of Numenor. Okay. All of, not all of the languages of men, but all of the Manish languages, let's call, let's put it like that, mm-hmm. are descended from Aduniac. That includes Rovanian, I think they call it, the language of Rohan. Uh, Rohiric, I think. Rohiric. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Rohiric um, is descended from Aduniac as well, distantly. That's so interesting. So then would, so if... If Fengal, or sorry, if Thangol goes back to Rohan, is he speaking Sindarin then? Or Westeron, yeah, he's speaking Sindarin. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, yes, he would have been speaking Sindarin. And then the people of... So, for example, so the hobbits spoke Western. Mm-hmm. The sort of general populace out in the, like, like Lake Town speaks Western and all that. Then Rohan speaks Rohiric, which is also a descendant of... A Duniac, but a different branch. Mm. But Gondor spoke uh, Sindarin. Okay. Because uh, it's descended from 
the kingdoms in exile, and for them, their their native language was Sindarin. The original native language was Sindarin. Aduniak came later. Numenorean Sindarin and Western. I don't know actually. Now, see, I'm t- kind of talking out of my ass here, but let me <laughs> let me double check that. Oh, I'm I'm both right and wrong. Ooh. Uh, by the time of the War of the Ring, Sindarin was a an academic language. So Sindarin okay. was he kind of had a similar role to Latin. Um, it was known to few, regularly spoken by fewer, typically in the amongst the educated class, and was um, you know like polite for polite or educated speech. Quenya was even more so. Westron was the main language of the people of Gondor. That makes sense. Yeah. So he probably spoke both then. I would imagine the king would, would, would have learned both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my sense is he probably spoke uh, Western, was his native tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, not native, since he grew up speaking yeah, Ro- Rohiric, but he probably was a much more com- much more comfortable speaker of Western. Mm-hmm. Um and knew knew a, knew a bit of Sindarin as well. And then when he came home, he he would have probably I'm sure he was perfectly capable of speaking Rohiric. But I you know if he spent most of his adult life speaking Western, yeah, and his wife and kids spoke Western, right? Yeah, I would imagine that he he spoke he had probably picked up a pretty significant accent. So. I think that I think you're absolutely right. Thank you for making that super clear. That was great. Yeah. So because I mean I think I think there's a note that none of None of his heirs spoke Rohiric, so I can see why he spoke Westron um, or Sindarin. And but unfortunately, you know, this made the folks of Rohan like not super psyched. But it wasn't a huge problem. Wait, so, so he and Morwen. None of his heirs the... spoke Rohiric. Yeah. So Theoden did not speak Rohiric. I guess not. I'll, I'll need to maybe corrections corner that next month. But like, I thought that there's a line somewhere that said like none of his heirs spoke the thingy. I'll look it up. I'm already right there. So. Okay, good, yeah. Because that's a bananas line, if true. The wiki says that he learned Sindarin while living in Gondor, and in his house it was the daily tongue, together with Westron, the common speech. Even after his return, he continued to use Westron, and Ro- Rohiric was not spoken by him or his heirs. Oh, so it's not that they couldn't speak it, it's that they didn't speak it. Yeah, I think what's so implied is it. that... I think what, what that's implied is that, like, in his house, like while he while he was in his house, he spoke. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So they probably did speak it or or could understand it, but they they chose not to. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That was a fun little sidebar. Oh, so interesting. I love that we try to get well that you try to <laughs> get language into everything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't try, but I think it, it, it just happens. It just happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think language is such a, an enormous part of class and culture. I think it's really interesting that the king coming back speaking a language of a, the relationship between Gondor and Rohan is so complicated. And so the king comes back speaking this other language. That's really interesting to me. There's a lot of really kind of, there's a, there's a paper in there somewhere. As my, I think so. as my teachers Absolutely. always used to say, uh, <laughs> whenever I would take classes at Mythgard, they'd be lecturing and they'd, they'd sometimes they would stop and they'd go, there's a paper in there somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a, that's, it's an interesting topic, the idea of the relationship between 
Rohan and Gondor in general is very inter- is is a really interesting sort of vaguely imperialist kind of one in a way. And then so that 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 relationship between language, um, I don't know if it's entirely imperialist is the right word. It's a little bit. Yeah. But it's a complicated relationship. Anyway. Absolutely. I mean, we talked in the first episode of this history that, remember, Roman to kill the second sent his son to go and live with um, Widu Maui uh, and her dad, whose name I've forgotten at the top right now, but to learn their language, right? Because that was the first thing they needed in order to bring these men sort of into his, into the service of Gondor. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it goes yeah. way back. Yeah. Well, Thingol and Morwen. I remember, and one more one was a lady of Gondor too, and Theoden and his two sisters from that era were both born in Gondor, which I think is great to remember too. Yeah. So they move back to Rohan. They have two more daughters. The youngest daughter is this beautiful girl named Theodwin. Um, she was very close to her older brother Theoden, and that will come into play later. So keep that in mind. All right, it's during this time that Saruman starts becoming a little uppity over at Isengard. And it's also during this time that a very enigmatic northerner named Thorongil comes into the service of Thingol. This is around 2957. So Thorongil is this captain who was loved by all. His name meant Eagle of the Star, and he wore a silver star upon his cloak. And the quote is, he came to Ichthalion from Rohan, where he served the king, Thingol, but he was not one of the Rohirrim. So, yeah. Anyway, no one knew who he was, but spoiler alert, skip the next 10 seconds if you don't want to know. This was Aragorn, la, la, yeah. la, 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 which is cool. I like that. It's I think that's neat. just occurring to me how bananas it is that Theoden was born in Rohan. Uh, in Gondor? Or in Gondor. Yeah, considering yeah, how it is. bitchy and bitter he is about Gondor in his elder years. Yeah. It is very interesting. I, maybe did he resent them? Uh, yeah. Well, obviously he resented them for not coming. I, I, he, yeah. I don't know. Might burp, burp. Meet more. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, something to think about. Theoden becomes king in twenty nine eighty. He's a pretty young man when he becomes king. He marries a woman named Elfhild, who unfortunately dies in childbirth for their one and only son, Theodred. We know a lot about Theoden, so I'm not going to bore you with a ton of Theoden stuff. He is such a beloved character. People love him. I love him. When I cry every time I read his death scene, um, I just can't. I just love him to death. Yeah. yeah. I, I just want to fill in a little bit of the story around Theodred because I think it's very interesting. And we get it in the Unfinished Tales. We, we don't get a lot about Theodred in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah. Because it was like Sir appearing off camera kind of thing. But in the Unfinished Tales, there uh, there's part three of the Third Age. It's called the Battle of the Fords of Aizen. And we hear about these two battles. So before we hear about them, very quick recap of how the military works in Rohan. Rohan usually has three marshals of the mark. The marshals are the highest military rank. They're the title of the king's lieutenants. The first marshal would be the ward of Edoras and the garrison there. The second marshal is the ward of the West Mark. And the third marshal is is the ward of the East Mark. In Theoden's time, remember I told you he was pretty young when he became king, it was also a very peaceful time. So he installed himself as the first warden. Normally the king would have chosen someone else, right? Like an advisor, but uh, he did it himself. And he had a guy named Elfhelm who was sort of his number two guy in the garrison. 
His son, Theodred, when he came of age, was the second marshal of the West, and Eomer, our good boy Eomer, my, my future husband, uh, it, it was the third marshal of the East. So, now we get understand the military a little bit. Let's get into it. So, Saruman, as we know, getting uppity, he wanted to conquer Rohan. Rohan is strategically a good place to get to Gondor, right? The Gap of Rohan is a great place to bring troops, and they were in his fucking way, and he wanted them dead, right? More or less, yeah. More or less. But he had two main obstacles, except for... Okay, so the king is one obstacle. Uh, but he had two extra ones, and that was Theodred and Eomer. They both loved Theoden so much as a father, and they also loved each other. They were very strong as a unit. So Saruman had to find other ways of driving uh, a wedge between them. Let's clarify who Eomer is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'm going to talk about him later. But thank you for saying that. Eomer is the king's nephew. So the king had that younger sister who, uh, and she unfortunately dies quite young. And so Eomer and his sister Eowyn, who we hear a lot about in the Lord of the Rings, come to be sort of foster children uh, of Theoden. So Theodred, the king's son, and Eomer, the king's nephew, grew up together as brothers. And they loved, there were 13 years between them, but they were very close. Uh, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. So these two loved Theoden and he loved them very much. This was a, this was a strong family unit. So Saruman wanting to find, drive a wedge between them, he needed to do that to weaken Rohan's defenses. So when the Theoden's around 66 years old, when this starts to happen, all of a sudden he like prematurely ages and he gets really feeble and sickly and he become he sort of falls under the influence of Saruman and his magical powers and this really butthole not nice uh advisor named Grima Wormtongue right this guy who we see in Pete Jackson's movies kind of uh -huh. gross and he's not great basically Theoden is being poisoned both physically and mentally by Grima so so this is an, this is a problem right all of a sudden your king is now not in control of his own mind and he's issuing he quote unquote are issuing these commands to the captain of his house of his household a guy named Hama and to Elfhelm who I mentioned was his in, tr in control of the garrison right of the first mark through Grima everything's being funneled through this not so great guy and Grima is using his influence to discredit Theoden to Theodred and Eomer, right? Like he's uh, basically yeah. he's trying everything he can to set Theodred and Eomer, right? These cousins against each other. But because they loved each other so well, so much and they were so loyal, this didn't really work. So then Grima played them against one another in Theoden's mind. And Grima convinced Theoden that Eomer, his nephew, wanted to gain his own power and was like trying to muster all this stuff for himself. And we see this kind of played out in The Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. So that's fine. Saruman wanted to conquer. He needed to get rid of Theodred, the king's son, at all costs in order to do this. So... Theodred finds out that Saruman's troops are gathering at the gates of Aizen. Okay, so remember, Theodred is the Marshal of the West Mark. So this is like the Hornburg area. This is, this is, that's where the Fords of Aizen are. It's all in this area. So he takes his men and he crosses the Fords with his cavalry and his second captain, or his, his captain, uh, which is a guy named Grimbold in the rear guard and they are basically going to try and catch Saruman's army before they're fully prepared and mustered. Right. Because they had this like 
they, they were sort of there, but they weren't quite ready yet. So Theodred's like, yeah, we're going to go get him. So he gets there and he unfortunately finds that the force is much bigger than his spies had, had said it was. And he calls for a retreat. Theoden, uh, Theodred, the son, right, sends his rear guard to the western shore of the river, and he and his men take this little island that's in the middle of the fords of Isengard. This is a shallow part of the river where, if you control it, you can pass a very large army over Isen, uh, which is so, so strategically, it's a great place. So they're on this little island. Um, it's called an eight, uh, it's spelled E Y O T, but it's pronounced eight. Uh, anyway, so Saruman's armies come in, they come to the eastern shore, they come way faster than they thought, and they, they like, send all their fiercest dudes towards Theodred. Because remember, their one thing that they were told to do is kill Theodred. They had to do that. So Yeah, this isn't Theodred, an army. This is an assassination. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that. So Elfhelm, the guy who was responsible for the garrison of Edoras, was on his way to the Hornburg at the same time that this was all happening, right? So Theodred and Grimbold are fighting and all of a sudden Elfhelm's coming with his men and he sees these like wolf riders and all this shit sort of happening in the fields and he gets a sense that something is wrong. So instead of going straight to Helm's Deep, he turns and goes directly to the fords and he and his men rush up and catch Saruman's army uh, by surprise. And they they rush in and they basically like save, they, they push back Saruman's army which is really good. Um, unfortunately, that's not before Theodred was taken down by what they call, quote unquote, a great orc man, <laughs> which, hey, <laughs> you just made my favorite face ever. Maybe he was just a really great guy. Everyone loved him. Or was it an Uruk? I'm not sure. Because they do use the term Uruk in this battle to mean, to mean like Urukai. Uh mm -hmm. But they also use orcs, so I don't know. A great orc man could mean a bunch of things. Anyway, so our dear sweet Theodred is taken down. Um, Elfhelm rushes in. Uh, Grimbold is there. Grimbold, right, Theodred's captain, was with Theodred when he was taken down, and he killed that great orc man who slew, um, you know, who, who killed Theodred. But when Elfhelm finally got there, he saw that these two axemen were trying to, like, get the body of Theodred away from Grimbold, and Grimbold was fighting, and things weren't going well. So he rushes in, and he kills one of the axemen, and Grimbold kills the other one. They're superheroes, and they reached down to Theodred, and he found that he was still breathing. And as they moved him, he said his last words, which were, let me lie here to keep the fords till Eomer comes. And then, unfortunately, he dies. And this is February 25th, seven days before Gandalf reaches Edoras on March 2nd, right? To free mm -hmm. uh, Theoden from Grima's grips. So, fuck, that's not great. King's son is dead. Uh, the rest of the, Ro the Rohirrim who were being chased away, they were being chased by this huge part of Saruman's army, right? And they get to this hill and they think they're in for it. And then all of a sudden, the Uruks turn around and they're like, okay, bye. And they don't pursue them anymore. And and we think that this is because they had, they had had word that Theodred had been killed. And so that was all that they needed. And the author, you know, Christopher Tolkien notes that like, if they had kept going and taken, taken down the horsemen at that moment, the tide of the battle would have been super different, right? Yeah. But they didn't. Um, and that actually worked out great for our heroes. 
So that's the first battle of Aizen. There's also a second battle, and I'm not going to go into it because, it, again, it's like long. But this is when we hear about Urkenbrand, who is... <clears throat> actually retired. He was the commander of the Westmark, and he had been retired and was living at the Hornburg, but had to kind of get reinvolved when Theodred died. Um, so Urkenbrand, as well as our boys Grimbold and Elfhelm, have a, have a second stand there. And I'm going to skip ahead. Things kind of went poorly, and eventually Gandalf rides in and tells them, like, Elfhelm uh, uh, tells... Um, Ah, sounding the horn tells Urkenbrand you got to get back to Helm's Deep right now and tells Grimbold hey buddy I'm I'm gonna need you to get back to Edoras right now right yeah. and then he tells oh sorry he tells Grimbold to ride to join Urkenbrand and he tells Elfhelm to ride to Edoras so Gandalf swoops in and kind of gives them all the nudges they need to get the pawns in the right place for these big battles right and Theoden and Helm's Deep and we all know how the story goes in Lord of the Rings yeah okay so back to Theoden's life. He wins a victory at the Hornburg. He brought his men to the Battle of Pelennor Fields, where unfortunately he dies in battle, but luckily not before he named Eomer his heir. He is brought back to Rohan in a big funeral procession, and he is buried at Edoras in the eighth mound of his line. Uh, and I just, just very quick quote from Aragorn. He's talking to Merry and Pippin. Marian's, Mary's very sad. He doesn't want to smoke pipe weed because it reminds him of Theoden and he's sad that Theoden and him won't be able to smoke together. And Aragorn says, for he was a gentle heart and a great king and, and kept his oaths. And he rose out of the shadows to a last fair morning. And I thought that was very sweet. Yeah. Okay. So this starts... The third and final line, which start with our good pal Eomer, nephew of Theoden. He became king at age 28 when Theoden died in battle. And Eomer was a really great king. We don't get a lot of it because the story is petering off at this point. But yeah. He reigned for 65 years and his his very strong friendship with King Elisar and Imrahil of Dol Amroth lasted their entire lives. In fact, he ended up marrying the daughter of Imrahil, a woman named Lothiriel, and they had a son, Elfwine the Fair, and he became king after Eomer. And I think it's important to note that King Elisar renewed the gift of Kirion. Uh, remember, this was uh, this basically allowed Eomer to remain king, even though the king had returned. And Eomer, in turn, renewed the oath of Eorl, and they they fought back evil together there for the rest of their lives. Basically, wherever King Elisar went to war, King Eomer went too. Uh, beyond the Sea of Rune and to the far fields in the south. And I think that's really lovely. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a quick quote from The Lord of the Rings, Book 6, Return of the King! Chapter 6, Many Partings, When I Cry a Lot, when they all start to say goodbye. <laughs> um, this is at Theoden's funeral. It sums up all the things that we've learned in this episode. So the quote goes like this. And then a minstrel and lore master stood up and named all of the lords of the mark in their order. Eorl the young and Brago the builder of the hall and Aldor brother of Baldor the hapless and Freya and Freyawine and Goldwine and Dior and Gram and Helm who lay hid in Helm's Deep when the mark was overrun. And so ended the nine mounds on the west side for in that time the line was broken. And after came the mounds of the east side, Freyalaf, Helm's sister son, and Leofa, and Walda, and Folka, and Folkwine, and Fengal, and Thangal, and Theoden the latest. And when Theoden was named, Eomer drained his cup, and Eowyn 
bade those that served to fill the cups, and all there assembled rose and drank to the new king, crying, Hail Eomer, king of the mark. So I think that's a great way to kind of sum that all up. Yeah. So here's the thing. Why should we care about this? Okay, so this is like my soapbox moment. Okay, through all of their history, through all of the like displacements, right, of the people of the north, they lost their homes, they lived through brutal wars, they lived through betrayals and friendships and sickness and loss and and servitude and all of these things through through all of this the strength of Rovanian like the Northmen of Rovanian of the Aeotheod and the people of Rohan it's undeniable I think that their story is like a tribute to the resilience of the human spirit and we see that we see that again and again in Tolkien's characters yeah. but I just love that this this rich history, their sacrifice, their loss, their bravery, all of this culminates in the Lord of the Rings when we see Théoden cry to his men at the start of the Battle of Pelennor. And he says, Arise! Arise, riders of Théoden! Fell deeds awake! Fire and slaughter! Spear shall be shaken! Shield be splintered! A sword day! A red day! Ere the sun rises! Ride now! Ride now! Ride to Gondor! And I just like I get oh I get very overcome by it's that. One of the most epic in the mo- in in every sense of the word in the modern sense and in the traditional sense of the word moments in the book and in the film. I think um we don't talk about the movies that much, but I don't I uh, it, it's such a perfectly casted role. Um the casting in the in those films is is one of those things that people argue about all the time, but I I've never heard anybody say a bad thing about, and I can't remember Bernard Hill, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. about his casting and his performance is so good, especially um, in Helm's Deep and and at the Battle of Pelennor Hill where he's just so charismatic as he rides down that line and gives that speech. It's terrific. It's tremendous. Um, and I think it's, it's one of those moments that uh, Christopher Tolkien's chief complaint with the films is that he feels like it doesn't, it's an action movie and it doesn't really capture the, the soul of, of, of his father's works. And I think that's true. Uh, I don't think there's any denying that statement, but there are moments in the, in the, in the films that perfectly capture for a moment what the books do. It's not perfect, but there are moments in the films that get you a moment in the book, in, in the books and Theoden writing down the line, crying out that battle cry, that, that battle cry before they go over, before they, they ride out is one of them. Yeah. Um, I think I, I cry like a baby every time I yeah. read it or or watch it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's terrific, and I I, I think it's it's an, it's a it's a terrific piece of filmmaking that, and it's it's great that it it also happens to be a terrific piece of Tolkien that is captured so well. Yeah, uh, just to piggyback off that a little bit. There's a letter that I wanted to mention. It's letter 296. Um, this is from Humphrey Carter and um, Christopher Tolkien's letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. This letter was written to Rainer Unwin uh, in 1967, and it says, My dear Rainer, I feel deeply grateful for your kindness to me on Wednesday. 
and all the trouble that you took in looking after me and my affairs. I thought you looked very tired and no wonder before we parted. I am singularly fortunate in having such a friend. I feel, if I may say so, that our relations are like that of Rohan and Gondor. And, as you know, for my part, the oath of Aeorl will never be broken, and I shall continue to rely on and be grateful for the wisdom and courtesy of Minas Tirith. Thank you very much indeed. Yours ever, Ronald Tolkien. Aww. I Oh, I just got goosebumps reading that. It's very sweet. And I love that he refers to himself as Aeorl, and maybe because Rainer was he older and like maybe he because mm-hmm. I remember Aeorl thought of Kirion as a father figure, right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. No. Anyway, I love that Tolkien often saw his life in terms of the story he was writing. Yeah. I think it really demonstrates the degree to which this story was his life in a lot of ways, in you know writ large in a different format, but it was. He put so much of his own life or or Lord of the Rings was so much of him and vice versa. But you, I, I think it's very, people give me shit now and then because I say things like, you know, it's not just another fantasy book and it's not, and it's not because it was the first of its kind or anything like that. But I just don't think that a lot of authors invest the way that he did in these stories. He, it wasn't just a novel to write. He wasn't just writing the novel. This was a piece of his life that just happened to be published. And I think that's very uncommon. Yeah. I I think you were right in line with what Tom Shippey was saying about how the Lord of the Rings has a story is like the horn of Aeorl, in in that it, it it emits like joy into the hearts of your friends and yeah, that it was like absolutely. to rally people around yeah, yeah exactly it's beautiful um well that is that's it i mean that's what i got for rohan i'm sorry it took such a long time to get through everything but i do hope you all enjoyed it i know i skipped some stuff but yeah i i hope you i hope you like it as much as i do now <laughs> my only disappointment is that i still had two horse puns that i didn't get to work, find a place to work in oh do you want to fire them off now <laughs> I'll save them for next time. I am okay. sure we will do more horse episodes. So I, I yeah. will, I will put them in my, uh, my horse pun stable and save them for the next time. Oh, <laughs> that's perfect. Thank you for that. Well, the road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at atherbeth underscore cast. Jude can be found at Aramidic Jude, and I can be found on Instagram at the North Four. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, ah. courtesy of Pond5. Thanks, Pond5. And Atherbeth is produced and edited by James Pearson. James can be found on Twitter at Jay Pearson, and he's cool and neat. 
And I like him. Yes, indeed. Same here. Yep. Although probably Thanks not the same way. Well, <laughs> we, we love him in different ways. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Yes, that was so good. (laughs) I have a four-year-old man. My horse noises are on point. You have no idea.